This podcast is proudly sponsored by Aspire Autism Consultancy, the leading providers of autism and ADHD training, educating and enabling families, therapists and healthcare professionals to gain knowledge and understanding of neurodiversity. The courses are written by two specialist psychotherapists and include the voices and lived experiences of neurodivergent individuals. For further details, go to www.aspireautismconsultancy.co.uk. I first saw my analyst of 66. We are now in our 50th year and we're beginning to get somewhere. <laughs> Please welcome Dr. Oliver Sack. He was the first major intellectual who spoke about diseases to the general public in a way that they could understand. His writing brought back essential aspects of medicine that treat the person and not the disease. Life threw so many things at him, some of which he brought on himself. He was the first to admit. It was at that time they discovered that he was gay. Where do you go where your mother calls you an abomination? You go to San Francisco and stop writing home. From an early age, it was understood that I was going to be a doctor. My brother Michael was diagnosed as schizophrenic. I became terrified for him. Michael was one of the reasons Oliver did what he did. Much of my life has been spent trying to imagine what it's like to be another human being. His great gift was storytelling about the human condition in a medical context emphasizing the fact that they saw the world in different ways. He would tell these stories so well that people who are brave, lonely, and left out are storied back into the world. Oliver was absolutely dismissed by fellow neurologists. He had his critics. For someone to say that he exploited his patients, I think that's absolutely wrong. Are you a doctor first and then a writer? The real answer is that I'm both, and in important ways they blend together. Oliver never lost that sense of wonder. Ten days before he died, he was writing. I don't tell you what I think. <laughs> People think he's saying, look at the others. He's not saying that. He's saying, look at us. On August the 30th, 2015, author and neurologist Oliver Sacks passed away from cancer. Dr. Sachs had an incomparable knowledge of the brain and its fascinating mysteries and puzzles. He was able to share that knowledge with both professionals and lay people through his elegant and compelling writing. His original and penetrating mind and his deep empathy and respect for his patients illuminate every page of Awakenings and the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Filmed just weeks after receiving a terminal diagnosis with full access to the man himself and those closest to him, Oliver Sacks' his own life is hitting our cinema screens. The documentary celebrates Sacks' incredible life and reminds us of his most important teaching, that our ability to connect with others is what truly makes us human. Directed by documentary filmmaker Rick Burns, the film features exclusive interviews with Temple Grandin and Steve Silberman, to name but a few. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Rick Burns today, the director of Oliver Sacks' His Own Life. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. I'm thrilled to be with you today. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, just tell us, here we are, nearly September 2021. How, how has this year been for you so far? You know, really freaking weird. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a experience I share, I know, with the entire globe. 
Um, <laughs> uh, it just it seems like um, one thing after another. Yeah. Uh, that we're now plunged in what now seems like an sort of a ambiguously or maybe unambiguously interminable circumstance with the Delta variant and the coronavirus yeah. uh, is hardly welcome for any of us, I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all I can say is that, you know, it's funny, it was certainly not our plan to have um, Oliver Sacks, his own life, come out during this circumstance, yeah. but there's in which Oliver um, was so keenly empathetic and acute in relationship to people who are locked in, locked down, locked in place by any one of a number of um, neuroatypical conditions, yeah. um, sometimes more often by attitudes others had towards those conditions. Yeah. And so it may well be that um, we're now experiencing generally as a world population what Oliver was acutely aware of, which is that we're all in a sense kind of locked in in our own selves. And we're all trying to both make sense of that and make sense of others. And as you said at the beginning so eloquently, to find some medium of exchange to connect with others. Absolutely. So maybe we'll, maybe our connection muscles will come out of this crisis um, slightly more flexed and powerful. Absolutely. So, so Rick, what kind of a man was Oliver Sacks? Um, you know, there's a wonderful humorist from the New Yorker magazine, long dead S.J. Perelman, who once said of himself writing in the third person, they broke the mold before they made him. Yeah. I think that's very true of Oliver. Yeah. Uh, you know, he kind of almost instantly, everyone who knew him, his family, of course, knew that uh, this was something um, different and remarkable going on. Yeah. The combination of his sort of, sort of really unstoppable ebullience, sort of hypersensitivity, um, almost manic curiosity about the world um, meant that he just, there's a photograph um, we have of him in the film actually kind of wearing like a sort of a 1930s version of a onesie kind of like white pajamas yeah. and the smile on his face is identical to the smile you see on Oliver Sacks' face, face when he was 81 or 82. Yeah. Um, so there's just something which was kind of carried within, like he was a cup of some delicious liquid running over the surface all the time. And that was extremely compelling and also got him into trouble. This yeah. sort of this extreme quality to his personality um, meant that Oliver was always sort of overflowing. Um, and, you know, that that's not always an easy fit for a world of rules and expectations and god knows prejudices absolutely uh, absolutely so how did the the documentary come about and i just wonder if you were familiar with oliver's work prior to filming yeah i'd never met oliver but i was film familiar with him from i hadn't read everything but i think it's true to say i'd read most things um by the early 2015 um and his you know his kind of his essay work in the London Review of Books and the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker was something people just waited for. I mean, you know, the joy of seeing Oliver's name on the cover, you know, of the London Review of Books was just kind of almost unequaled because you knew you were going to get this, you know, a new sort of kind of tour into some aspect of experience, which you wouldn't have known a few decades ago, you were tremendously interested in, but he habituated you to this by this stunning output of work. You know, I got a call from a friend of a friend, um, a wonder, remarkable human being, Kate Edgar, who'd been Oliver's 
um, editor and really collaborator for 30 years um, and remains the uh, executive director of the Oliver Sacks Foundation and the archives. Yeah. And you're called up and said in early January 2015 and said, I'm sorry to say, Oliver um, has received a terminal diagnosis of metastasized cancer. And um, would you come in and film him? Um, and so, you know, it was one of those things where there was not even a moment's hesitation without knowing immediately what that would be in terms of the way the film would would come out. You know, within a few weeks, we were in Oliver's sitting room um, in Greenwich Village on Horatio Street um, and very much finding Oliver Sacks in his natural habitat, which is to say with Kate Edgar, with his partner, um, Billy Hayes, a yeah. wonderful person himself. And then over the next five days, which, John, that was what our first interview with him was. Five 12 hour days, very like, which I understand, I came to understand that was, that would be typical of Oliver. I mean, normally you go in and do an interview with like for an hour or two and yeah. maybe back later. But this was nine, nine to six over a course of a remarkable week and a deep dive um, into Oliver's mind and his world and his personality and his friends. And the friends were this, I, I'm so glad they were there. It's nothing I would have anticipated. Um, but it was this kind of, movable feasts of friends and neurologists and his housekeeper Yolanda and, um, you know, uh, patients he'd had, Shane Castell, Lowell Hemp. And what was great about that was that one was seeing somebody in the beautiful, complex terrain, which was the terrain of the family he'd kind of created for himself in his own life, uh, chiefly, though not entirely, in New York City, where he had, after fleeing to America, um, when he was 30 years old. And so he was able to, I don't know what, be maybe less guarded, although Oliver, try though Oliver might to be guarded, he was so helplessly unguarded. Yeah. And yeah. It was really kind of like, you know, a remarkable circumstance and then in a remarkable stretch of time so that, you know, colleagues and I, um, you know, we had, we met Oliver, you know, really, in doing these interviews, yeah. but at the end of that first week, we were, I don't want to say that we were family members, but we had just spent, you know, uh, 60 hours yeah. uh, in intense work and thinking and laughing and finally crying. Um, and so that's really the bulk of what we got for the film came from that time, supplemented by interviews we did with him in April and then in June yeah. of 2015. Um, and then the illness, as he knew it would, I mean, he figured he had about six months and he was exactly right. Um, and, you know, we didn't, he kind of retreated into a very close uh, circle of friends and loved ones. Yeah. And he said on August 30th, 2015, at which point we then interviewed 25 people he knew well um, over the course of the next year and a half and uh, sat down to figure out what we wanted to do with the film. So you've touched on it already, but what was it like for you personally then that first week when you met Oliver and you, you filmed with him? It was, it was challenging and strange and then wonderful. Um, you know, he, he created a kind of persona for himself, of course, in his writing. You know, Dr. Oliver Sacks, neurologist, clinician, writer. Um, infinitely curious, infinitely empathetic, obviously very, very brilliant. 
um, who uh, had this kind of steady, warm tone in his writing, um, as he did in, you know, um, in his lecturing, et cetera. And it was really one of those funny hiding in plain sight persona, which said, although you weren't quite aware of it until you were, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Everything you need to know about him um, is coming through in the reassuring tone that you have and that you're hearing or reading. And when you meet Oliver, um, especially in this somewhat unguarded situation, what you realize is that that, that tone is not wrong but it's on the surface of a vastly complex, um, in many ways, very extreme personality who had lived a life by the time we met him in 2015 of really enormous, enormous turbulence and pain and difficulty and challenge and overcoming. Nobody, John, knew Oliver Sacks was homosexual, was gay, um, January 2015. I didn't. And what's really remarkable is that it was a closely guarded fact um, known only to a tight circle of insiders. Right. Um, and that year, in his last six months, he came out. Uh, you know, he came out in, in a book he wrote, which he had written but not yet published. Yeah. Um, interviewing him um, on the move, remarkable memoir, uh, in which now he's talking about the things which were always there below the surface and clearly a huge part of who he was, but which he didn't share. Yeah. Uh, and that feeling of the extremeness and the complexity and the um, sort of really, really textured nature of Oliver is what came through. And in the beginning, um, on that first Monday, I wondered, wow, you know, he, there's something going on here, yeah. and I, you know, I, you know, I was sitting there, kind of blinking my eyes and asking questions, and um, it it took a while to realize and understand the rhythm of the temporality of Oliver Sacks' personality, um, which you know could seem like it was teetering on really kind of like um, interminable self-absorption until you realize that what he was all the time was acutely sensitive to everything he was perceiving, hearing, experiencing in other people, in plants, in animals, in the neighbor next door, so that he was so absorbed. I mean, with a kind of a sense of how, you know, kind of undefended he was from the data of the world coming through all his senses that he was kind of hanging on himself for dear life and used to that roller coaster ride. And so what seemed like self-absorption was someone who was processing, you know, enormously finely, continuously. And that's different. You know, that's somebody who doesn't quite, you know, have the same experience, may I say, most of us do, where we're, you know, a little more routinely obedient to um, uh, social protocol what you do and don't say, how, how you do and don't respond. And that was the temporality of Oliver Sacks, which took, and that was what was so great about having all this time in the beginning. It was literally like, you know, like your parents say, we're going to throw you in the deep end if you want to learn how to swim, you know, and not an inapt metaphor for an Oliver Sacks who was an extraordinary swimmer who thought nothing of swimming for hours in Long Island Sound, where the worst currents on the east coast of the Atlantic 
swirl around you, you know, deadly riptides, hell's gate, you know, and Oliver built like an ox and capable of swimming. His dad had once swum around uh, the Isle of Man. So he got it, you know, on it came by and honestly. Um, so this just extraordinary human being, physically strong, emotionally vulnerable, helplessly, joyously, um, you know, alive to the world. You know, he had that his whole life and hadn't lost, I would say, had lost absolutely none of it right up to the point he died, as everyone who knew him said. Um, it was just, so what a time, John, to happen into an experience um, with cameras running. Yeah. Such an unusual person who, as we came to understand, this would be the story of our film. This is the story of a man and his fr friends looking back on the meaning of his life in his 81st and 82nd year. The year he received a mortal diagnosis. So it's also the story of a man confronting um, mortality in the most kind of uh, unflinching way imaginable. And those are the two stories which we attempted to um, pretty obviously intertwine in making this film about Oliver. And Rick, do you think there was uh, ever a sense of fear that Oliver had about dying? I think so. Um, and he acknowledged as much. We got to him during that first week of interviewing, which was February 9th to February 13th, 2015. Um, and he actually that week had finished writing, but had not yet published a remarkable piece, which appeared on the opinion page of the New York Times the following week called My Own Life, which is a phrase of David Humes, who when he got his Humes mortal diagnosis had written in the third person, an autobiographical account of his David Humes life. And Oliver read that piece for us on the Friday night at the end of our first long week of filming. And it's what left us in tears because he acknowledged in it. It was a kind of a open um, statement to his readership. Yeah. New York Times that he had this portal mortal diagnosis. As he said, you know, uh, my luck ran, ran out. And he acknowledged feeling anxiety and fear. Um, but he also acknowledged that more than that, what he felt um, in a classically beautiful Oliver prose, he felt enormous gratitude um, for having been a thinking being, a thinking animal, a sentient being on this beautiful planet. And with that, he closed this essay. And so what you had is this person who, listen, he's an, an atheist, English, homosexual Jew. And I have frequently said that meant for sure he was going to end up sooner or later being a New Yorker. And the atheist part from an Orthodox Jewish family meant he was convinced this is it. Yeah. Um, you know, once and no more, um, lights out. And so confronting mortality um, with the certainty that this brief sojourn was now going to come permanently to an end, you know, is bracing in its own way for non-believers. And yet Oliver, I think Oliver's grasp of the circumstances that make mortality inevitable was so deep and so refined, um, coming as it did from literally a lifetime of scientific, um, joyous scientific uh, inquiry and research and learning. And he knew in his heart it couldn't be any other way. And that, you know, as his friend Francis Crick, the 
this, the neuroscientist and co-discoverer of the double helix with James Watson said when he got his mortal diagnosis, everything that has a beginning has an end. And Oliver knew that in his bones. And I think there was something that allowed him to steady himself in the face of the tremendous fear of mortality. Um, and also his ability to muster, rally all the enormous strength he had, physical, um, you know, quite apart from anything else. And say, I'm going to live this, I'm going to live my life to the lees. I'm going to, I'm going to get everything out of it. I'm going to, as he said, live and love and be happy and be silly and continue above all to write. And so he kind of focused on all of his enormous energies on being himself and being with others whom he loved in his last six months. And in so doing, gave what his friend Lawrence Weschler, a remarkable writer, um, formerly from The New Yorker, close friend of Oliver's of 40 years, you know, he gave a master class in dying. Um, because I think this extraordinarily generous gift he gave um, to be to maintain this ongoing relationship with his readership. And he published beautiful essays um, in the New York Times, in the New Yorker in his last six months. And then it continued afterwards, posthumous publications, in which his dialogue is what he called beautifully in his in the New York Times piece I mentioned before, you know, he, he said, I've had this um, the re special intercourse, the special intercourse of writers and readers, each word chosen very carefully for a man who spent 35 years of his adult life celibate and found only romantic, erotic, sexual happiness in the very last few years when he met the only person he ever had a successful relationship with, Bill Hayes. Remarkable person in his own right. Um, and so, you know, he, that, that there's the narrative of Oliver's life is, is a kind of a slow, painful, and successful coming to terms with, grappling with, and finally, you know, accepting and understanding who he was and what the world was. And so there is this remarkable, absolutely, uh, you know, unconstructive narrative, which, you know, people, extreme people like Oliver Sacks end up constructing for themselves. You know, he almost, he almost blew up endless times. And it was only when he was really at the end of his tether that he made the choices that allowed him to successfully move on. Like when he stopped taking drugs in the 1960s and met the awakenings patients shortly thereafter and, you know, as he kind of found himself, created himself in this career. Um, and so, you know, but that wasn't it. He still didn't have professional recognition from the scientific community who laughed him or ignored him completely. Um, finally, he got that in the late 20th century when none other than Francis Crick or Gerald Edelman, the leading exponents, proponents of, you know, kind of cutting edge neurology went, this guy has data nobody else has about what it feels like to be in any one or a number of these neurotypical conditions. But still, he was alone. Still, he couldn't come in terms of the sexuality. Yeah. And he meets Bill Hayes um, six or seven years before he dies. And everybody around him, as his friend Robert Crawlwich, the journalist, said, breathed this huge sigh of relief. And he still hadn't acknowledged his sexuality. 
it comes out the year he dies. So I just feel there's this, I don't feel like, you, you see this kind of remarkable cascading of turning points, arriving at this extremely calm, kind of rendered Oliver Sacks, 100% still himself, but with a peace with himself, which nobody who knew him well um, had ever quite seen before in the last half, half year of his life. Yeah. So, you know, he, he died on August 30th, 2015, with Bill Hayes on one side of him in bed and his beloved, you know, professional partner, Kate Edgar, on the other, having stopped writing only a couple days before. You know, we filmed his notebook in which, you know, the pen ran out of energy. You can see the last squiggles. This place writing where Oliver had said so movingly, you know, that he doesn't really know where he feels at home, that he's came to America in 1960. He's been there as his whole adult life. He never became a citizen of the United States. Yeah. Was a kind of a fugitive from his home country, which he loved, but had enormous complicated feelings about through his family and elsewhere. That, that, was, the, that was the UK, wasn't it, that Oliver was born in? That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was you know, born in North London to a family of Orthodox Jews yeah. um, and with very close, very loving. But then, of course, his mother, who loved him best when he came out at 18, had said, you are an, you are an abomination to me. I wish you had never been born, which he understood she really didn't mean. But nevertheless, that's a cutting scimitar like blow from the person who's more important to you. And, you know, uh, two years later, he took off for a summer vacation to North America and not quite never came home, but never came home permanently. Yeah. So he's on the run, or as he said is in the title of his book, On the Move. Um, and that he would have been able to finally come to a certain kind of peace with the things which were so difficult for him to come to peace with, above all um, sexual feelings. Living as he had by that time in Greenwich Village for 20 years, he could not, as Bill Hayes said in our film, even after all that, he could not walk down the street arm in arm with Bill Hayes until the very, very end in Greenwich Village, which is, you know, shows you uh, how difficult it was to be a gay man growing up in Alan Turing's England, um, abominated by your loving mother um, and not sure where to run or where to go. Wow, yeah. So, so what surprised you most about Oliver as you were getting to know him, Rick? You know, his work was really focused on, obsessed about what it is to be a conscious living thing. You know, indeed, really interested in the, you know, the objective brain you know, realities of that, you know, neural firings, et cetera. Nobody was more interested in that aspect than Oliver. But what he was, his, his real focus was what, you know, this magic thing that happens where each morning we wake up and the world gathers around us again and we have a self. We're the only people who have access to it. Where does that self come from? Where does subjectivity come from? Um, and so he was, as Temple Grand had said, he was a, he was like the Hubble Space Telescope of neurologists and astronomer of mind, looking into, really deeply interested in, obsessed with, 
the phenomenon of consciousness, which is like the whole ball of wax, and which he was obsessed with from the beginning, at a time professionally when others weren't, when neuroscience was going much more in the opposite, observable, behaviorist, you know, what can we measure? How can we do, you know, um, experiments on it? It's hard to do experiments on subjectivity. Um, and so you have to re rely on tools which are not thought to be intrinsically scientific because they're so slippery and ambiguous. Empathy, intuition, um, la language ability, writing. But he knew that if you were going to connect to other people, you were going to have to use yourself as a kind of a divining rod to gather what was going on inside through long, patient, empathetic engagement so that you could then create a database and then write it up. Wow, that's, that's unusual. It was unheard of, basically, at the time that he began his work, you know, the awakenings period in the 60s and 70s. And he really sort of created a new database, which was not recognized until later part of the century. That was really surprising to really grasp the um, focus and kind of coherence of Oliver Sacks' concerns. Um, you know, as he said in that piece, he's really interested in what it is to be a thinking animal, a sentient being. And he was convinced that Tourette's and people with autism and people who are um, deaf and people in all sorts of neuroatypical circumstances, that there is a temporality of consciousness and subjectivity which corresponds with that. And of course, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Oliver Sacks was the person who helped show to a wider world what sense that makes. I found that like revelatory, John, as just, you know, like any of us, a reader of, you know, you know, a reader, a general interest kind of person to understand that beneath and below this really kind of encyclopedic range of interests and articles and books, this profoundly consistent, coherent um, piece of work was going on, which was infinitely complex and various. It always came back to this subject, this kind of, this fragile thing, which we all call ourselves, um, and how it's, you know, fruit, it's a fruit of the brain, it comes out of the brain, um, and it's reducible to the brain, finally, but the experience itself is absolutely unique in each of us, which was something Oliver really understood. You know, people like the Awakenings patients, really are no different in kind from the rest of us. Yeah. As I said at the top, each kind of locked in, each looking for connection. Yeah. And Oliver Sacks would have found the means as a scientist, as a doctor, as a writer, and as a person to say, you know, these divisions between science, art, biography, writing are artificial divisions, and that there's a place where they all come together that art and writing are probably really just the science of human subjectivity, the way we gain access to each other's subjectivity, not to the, you know, the blips of light on an MRI, but to the actual experience that people are undergoing, whether it's him or anyone else. That's, I'd always sort of kind of gotten that in a certain way, but as a reader and admirer of Oliver's, 
to see that he had no less than a Sigmund Freud or a Charles Darwin or a really sharp, defined focus to his work, which, you know, like, you know, a current, an electric current through his whole life. You know, people, people who have that focus and determination, you know, either repeat themselves um, endlessly um, and become obsessive compulsives, or they're extraordinary scientists who are intent on discovery. And Oliver Sacks was no doubt in the latter camp. So you mentioned the word autism before. Would it be fair to say that Oliver Sacks helped introduce the world to autism? I think in a certain way he did. Um, you know, almost all of these conditions were either little known or misunderstood by anything like a general public. Um, and as Temple Grandin, you know, who extraordinary animal behaviorist um, and herself autistic, who's talked and spoken about it so eloquently, you know, she said of Oliver, you know, it kind of really blew my mind how deeply he understood me. And that this is a person who, as someone who's autistic, had gone through her life clearly aware that most people assumed if you were artistic, as she said, you have no interior, uh, interior life. Yeah. Somehow, you know, you're on some kind of almost computer-like, you know, autopilot. Yeah. Uh, it just, no, you're just, you have a different, you're a different pilot of a different kind of interior. Yeah, no, I was honored to, to interview Temple Grandin and Steve Silberman on previous um, podcast episodes, yeah. I mean, they're remarkable people, all of them. Yeah. Um, and so I think Oliver just, you know, he couldn't help but understand her, who she was. And there's a kind of a way in which that, you know, he was interested, but not surprised yeah. in people, how he discovered people were in all their difference, which is why he would have been just as interested in you or me, any of us. Yeah. Um, and was in a certain way, and a remarkable catholicity of, of interest. Yeah. And so I think he helped you know, um, help people understand autism as just another version of normal. Yeah. Um, as he helped, um, you know, Robert Silver, his uh, publisher and editor at The New Yorker, assigned him a, a, a task to, to look into, um, you know, sort of a big movement inside the deaf community. Um, and Oliver didn't know about it. And now it came, you know, a remarkable tome. Um, you know, five years later, because he was incapable of doing nothing by halfway measures. So he looked into that you know, very, very deeply and his under came to understand the extraordinary way in which um, the deaf, deaf people have entirely their own language and their own, which is kind of just seen as, you know, by the, by those of us, including me, who didn't get it as some kind of deficit. But in fact, it's a tremendous asset that there are all these things which are parts of the brain which are otherwise used by hearing people for audio processing now are available for enormous amount of other things. And so one discovers that it's always, you know, as Lowell Handler himself, a Toretta, good friend of Oliver's, remarkable photographer said, you know, Oliver showed him, Lowell, that he wasn't less than normal. He was more than normal. And there's even a certain scientific truth to that in that among the things that some Tourette's can have an excess of is dopamine. It's what, if you have Parkinson's, you have too little dopamine and it makes movement, it slows movement and, and changes its temporality. 
in some aspects of Tourette's has more dopamine. Um, and so indeed, indeed more than normal rather than less than normal. And I don't think certainly no one, John, we spoke to who Oliver Sacks knew and treated as a patient, you know, said anything but that it was just this extraordinary sense of being seen and understood non-judgmentally, um, which was the kind of the drumbeat of Oliver's interaction, which you can see as he's interacting with his patient. Yeah. You know, just there, he's kind of like this hyper excitable man is in those circumstances in this Zen trance of focus and understanding. Um, and being with another human being, which is really the two places he felt most at home were, as he said, in his writing and with his patients. And that makes total sense then that he should become the doctor, neurologist, writer that he did. What were your favorite scenes from the documentary? <laughs> you know, I think if anybody, I would urge people to see the film um, if for no other reason than when they've seen it, they'll never think about orange jello in any other way. Uh, and, you know, Oliver's sort of helpless, self-revelatory, um, you know, personality um, is perhaps on display in that scene, which I won't spoil for your listeners, but it's just, he suddenly comes out with like a, whoa, I've never heard somebody say that before. But he was such exquisite charm and an awareness that he both, you know, stepped across the line and then magically danced back across the right side of it at once. So you have that thrill of experience. It's like a roller coaster, an Oliver Sacks roller coaster. And very frankly, the things that I love most about doing this film, and therefore the things that in it mean most to me, are often unverbal reaction shots of Oliver or the people who know him. Yeah. I mean, including the moment when Oliver tells his orange jello story, where he's actually eating green jello, which Yolanda, his housekeeper, has provided him. Yeah. And he looks away and he kind of shakes his head for a moment and laughs. And then Billy says off camera, What are you thinking about, Oliver? And out comes the story. Yeah. It's that, this rare thing where, the, where our incredible cameraman, Buddy Squires, is capturing not just the outside of somebody or and, and his friends, but what's going on inside, which you can feel. A cutaway to Bill Hayes, beautiful, you know, now nearly 50-year-old man who is Oliver's partner late in life. Yeah. You know, smiling beautifully and shaking his head. So you can feel that it's not just what you're seeing, it's the insides of the people whose exterior, the camera and the and the recorder are capturing. And that's really special to me because it makes me feel like those are the things, that's what, that makes a film worth doing. When you capture, when you're fortunate enough, maybe just dumb luck um, to capture glimpses, you know, perceptions of the interior of other human beings, um, which, you, which you see and feel and understand with tremendous clarity. Um, so even though you can't see it, you get what's going on in somebody's mind. And, you know, that the intimacy of that, um, which we are, of course, violated, we were required not to violate the responsibility of that. 
but and to respect it. But also, it's I feel the the center of the film. Um, this sort of like, and not just Oliver's subjectivity, that of everybody who was there, including all the people with tears streaming down their face um, at the end of our first week of filming. Um, that, gee, isn't that the stuff that matters most? Um, yeah. You know, it's not every day, to put it mildly, that one finds oneself with the opportunity to engage so deeply um, with other human beings about the things that matter most at, at, at such a crucial moment in someone's life. Um, incredible, you know. I mean, it's really, I, I think, of, I marvel about this now, years later, six years later. Absolutely. Did Oliver have an overarching message then that you wanted to get across with the documentary? You know, that that it is a kind of a non-theological miracle that we're all gifted with these things we call selves. And that there's pain involved with that and terror involved with that, but enormous joy. And that it's up to each of us, Oliver felt, to grasp the wonder of that and not shrink from the terror, acknowledge it, but also to, to really engage fully um, with this special journey that we're all on. And that's, you know, which is why in a sense, we just wanted to call it Oliver Sacks, his own life. Um, because I think what he's felt and which, what he wanted to communicate was that each of us is irreducibly unique and therefore in that sense separated from everyone else. But each of us has a kinship in our irreducible uniqueness, which gives us a point of departure for sharing empathy and connection. And so that, it's not a paradox, but that sort of seeming but not actual contradiction, I think, is at, at the heart. That the, that the very thing which seems to lock us in is exactly the thing that allows us to be liberated and to share um, and to connect. So that's, you know, as no less than Ian e. Forrester, Oliver's mantra would have been only connect. And that's his, and he knew that as a scientific mission as well. Yeah. Connect, got to understand who these people are. You know, it's not enough to just know where the lesion is. That's crucial. You have to know who the self is that has that lesion and how they navigate that experience. Um, and in that, you're getting the deepest, most important scientific information you could possibly receive. And that's, I think, the lesson I took away from Oliver. Yeah, absolutely. So, Rick, so when does Oliver Sacks' His Own Life come out in UK cinemas? Um, we're so thrilled. It's going to be in September uh, of this year. Um, and we're really, really thrilled to be, in this respect, bringing Oliver home. Um, you know, he really lived, I think he really lived in two places his whole life. Um, and one of them was Mavesbury Road um, in the house he was brought up in. Um, and 
So he fled the UK, but you know, you don't ever flee successfully. And you know, I think that I'd like to I'd like to think Oliver would be really pleased um, to have the film shown uh, in his the country of his birth. Um, I mean, he was an Englishman. <laughs> no question. Yeah, yeah. Rick, it's been fascinating speaking to you and hearing all about Oliver, who helped redefine our understanding of the brain and the mind, the diversity of human experience and our shared humanity. Oliver Sacks, his own life is a tender, joyous and life-affirming portrait of a truly extraordinary man. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, John. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with you.